coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I know everyone's like focused on genetics, 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 but what Entheon is trying to do is to try and get all the pieces of the puzzle together. And by starting with what we're doing as a direct consumer test, as an educational tool, it gets people thinking about that. So we're very clear that at this stage of where the platform is, we are not recommending medical treatments. We are not saying based on your genetic profile, if you do the survey, you should go do something. It's like an educational tool. And the feedback that we hear from people that do it is, wow, I wasn't even thinking about this sort of stuff. And it's making me curious scientifically and both personally to try and figure out other things in my life. And, and that is the goal. Like genetics is not destiny. We all know that. So the phrase is personalized medicine, right? Personalized medicine is trying to take all sorts of factors and tailor a treatment for the individual that looks at all the things. So that's really what we're hoping it is done. And that's why we say it's an educational tool. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I am your host, as always, Eamon Armstrong. What if a simple test could reveal the speed of your psychedelic metabolism or your propensity for psychedelic-triggered mental health issues? Well, providing information on five key genetic variants, Halogen Life Sciences is a direct-to-consumer test and an education tool to help us all understand the various factors that impact the psychedelic experience. On today's show, I speak with Tim Coe and John Lem from Entheon, the company behind Halogen. On the show, we review each of the biomarkers they test for, including three biomarkers for general mental health risks, a variant that causes slower ketamine metabolism, and a variant that increases the density of serotonin 2A receptors. We discuss the potential actionability of this data and how Entheon sees the tool developing over time. Timothy Coe has a broad background of leading private ventures in the service sector, investor relations, retail, and technology. His passion for the psychedelic space is shaped by firsthand knowledge of the shortcomings of the current mental health system and through his exposure to psychedelics, which he credits with saving his life. John Lem is the co-founder of Spartan Bioscience and Lobogenetics, with 15 years of experience in life sciences, medical devices, and capital markets. And now, here's John and Tim. Tim, John, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's exciting to talk to you today. And for me personally, I'm doing a functional medicine program right now. So I've been paying a lot of attention to my genes and just how my whole system relates to what I eat, to my exercise, meditation. And so what Halogen is offering in relation to psychedelic therapy, this uh, genetic test for five different biomarkers, this has been really interesting, and I was able to do the test prior to this conversation. So I feel not only excited to have this conversation for our audience of psychedelic therapists, but also for myself, because this is an area of interest for me. So welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. I am. So I like to start the program often by 
just introducing you by way of your own experiences with psychedelics, if you feel comfortable sharing. Tim, can you tell me a little bit about your involvement in psychedelics and how you became interested in psychedelic healing? Sure. It's, uh, my history with psychedelics is, runs pretty long, I think, over the course of about two decades at this point. I was growing up in a pretty highly sort of stressful environment, the sort of environment that is a pretty religious Korean sort of upbringing. And for those that don't know about our Korean cultural background, it is a highly charged, high expectation environment. And then when you pair that with this notion of the sort of uh, omniscient sky god that knows every derelict thought that you've ever had, and paired with a pretty regular Sunday school interaction, I was understandably quite high strung. And yeah, initially when I first stumbled upon psychedelics, I was a really tightly, tightly wound ball of performative sort of actions that would you know, consider me a good boy, a good Christian boy, a good student, a good son, a good brother. And so psychedelics were actually, I won't specify the exact age that I did them because I don't want to condone that necessarily. But what it did show me is that some of the expectation load that I carried was unreasonable and probably detrimental to me. And it really did allow me for maybe the first time to experience a type of ecstatic glee that was at that time super crucial to my development. You know, that same household that produced me, this tightly wound person, also produced my brother. And so my brother's story is that over the course of my brother's teen years, there was that similar sort of basket of pressures that sort of was built up in him. And due to a medical mishap at the age of about 17 for him, there was a elective surgery where my brother uh, was quite uh, significantly uh, injured and it didn't allow him to leave the house for about five years. And so understandably, this notion of not being a part of the social fabric, not being a part of a loving network of people that remind you of your value, your worth, etc. He became quite isolated and very activated. And so a means that he found for dealing with that was to self-medicate with drugs and what was initially like cannabis and MDMA and things of that nature over the course of two decades evolved into hardcore opiate use, ultimately resulting in sort of crack cocaine use as well as fentanyl abuse. And sadly, I lost my brother to a drug overdose in March of 2019. And over the course of that whole span where I saw my brother sort of descending deeper into what originally started as a means of self-medicating and sort of like absolving himself of that distress, the momentum of that sort of like self-perpetuating cycle of re-traumatization and not dealing with those core issues related to that initial trauma really did create this thing where, you know, that understanding that core notion of, hey, what distress am I actually experiencing? And what does it result in me doing on a behavioral level? That became so evasive and so layered in additional traumas and psychoses. And then ultimately, over the course of about the three years where I took on responsibility for his care, there was a whole host of additional medications, whether it was Suboxone, Methadone, Anxiolytics, Antipsychotics, that further suppressed his ability to access that core wisdom in the same vein that traditional 12-step and psychotherapy really tries to get at, which is hey, in order for us to treat now, we need to get at the nascent or the, the sort of the big bang. Where do these behaviors originate? And is it from processes of maladaptive attachment? Is it from trauma? Is it from a an acute or a sort of like aggregate degradation of a sense of like safety or worth? 
these things that we need to investigate in order to understand ourselves to operate at this emotional neutrality where we can just take in life as it is and not be hypersensitized to respond reactively. That was so suppressed by the medications that were being employed and that the psychotherapy that was also concurrently trying to be deployed. It didn't have these sort of rich grounds from which to, I guess, bring forth some enlightenment or insight. And in parallel to that, you know, over the course of my development too, again, going back to my family of origin, I had to, I also suffer from mental illness. I was diagnosed with having major depression as well as anxiety, both of which conditions I was medicated for with, you know, clonazepam, Xanax, Valium, Effexor, Prozac, the whole litany of things. I did actually find myself sort of reinteracting with psychedelics and quite vividly at the age of about 28, as I was going through trauma therapies, EMDR and lenswear therapies, trying to get at the core of my trauma, I actually reached a tipping point where the therapies were not doing as the sort of tin prescribed and it was actually resulting in a state of really heightened, I guess, reactivity. I was reliving sort of the emotional matrices of interaction with family of origin story where male figures in my life really did create a visceral, angry sort of reaction. So I found myself actually descending into a very deeply distressing state. And I was actually at the tipping point. I'm glad I never found out what was over the edge of that tipping point. And at that time, at the age of around 28 or so, someone introduced me to DMT for the first time. And over the course of some self-prescribed sessions that took place in maybe about 10 days or so, I was really able to look at my experience with my brother, my father, the conditions of living, the relationships I built in a way that really allowed me to reframe everything, my expectations around what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a brother, the torment that I'd faced, things like that. And through many shapes, colors, and sort of vignettes, like I was able to feel a sense of forgiveness, both of myself and of my brother and of my father. I actually recalled stories of my father telling me that his own brother had committed suicide when he was 17 due to the high expectation load of growing up, you know, under a very sort of highly pressurized set of circumstances. And suddenly I find myself at the end of those sessions, totally non-directed and some derived of my own internal wisdom that I was able to forgive. And then from that point at the age of about 28, where I felt the sort of tangible and palpable releasing of carrying those tensions and activations, I then thus proceeded to live the best years of my life. The best years of my life that included reestablishing a relationship with my brother and caring for him and actually finding love for him where previously that didn't exist. But yes, absolutely. DMT was instrumental in the transformation of my life. And I really wished it had the opportunity to be transformational for my brother. But sadly, that science wasn't there yet. And the sort of the availability of those, those options didn't exist. And so I guess I've taken an honor to bring that reality about. Very sorry to hear about your brother, Tim. And, you know, you started the story of his trauma with an elective surgery that went wrong and caused harm. And there is the potential for harm with psychedelics. And so I can see how the work that you're doing with Entheon and Halogen specifically 
working with genetic predictors for certain kinds of mental health risks. I can see how that's going to be very important work as we bring these medicines to a greater population where there's potential likelihood for contraindications and and indeed even something as, as serious as schizophrenia. There's so much science that we need to pour over to make these medicines safe. So I, I, I see the resonance there that these medicines can be lifesavers and you never know exactly how they're going to interact with your system. So thank you for sharing that story. John, how about you? you? How did you get involved in psychedelics and perhaps psychedelics, but also the work that you're doing specifically with halogen? So for me, it really started, I previously founded a company that was focusing on cannabis genetics. And so cannabis as well, probably less of a therapeutic impact in terms of the strength of CBD and THC. There's definitely genes on the cannabis side that impact metabolism and risk. And so what, a little over a year ago, got approached by Halogen that was also at the time familiar with Entheon. And Entheon ended up acquiring Halogen. And they asked us actually to develop the, I guess, adapt our cannabis platform for psychedelics in terms of the genetic markers and our direct consumer platform. But then they also asked us to build on top of that specific features that now and in the future could be helpful to the psychedelics community. So what do I mean by that? So not only can you do a genetic test, our platform has the ability to do surveys that are commonly used as screening tools, very rough screening tools, but it kind of gives you an indication of where you sit, whether you're talking about lifestyle factors or um, family history factors or mental health factors. And so we're, we're also trying to create basically like educational I guess, portal, as it were, where it gives you a little bit of all sorts of things, of things you should consider when you're embarking on this journey. And it's getting people that, I guess, think about how it is very multifactorial because you look at Tim's very powerful story. It wasn't just the drug component, right? There was like a, a lifestyle component. There was a cultural component. There was a family component and all those things together. That is why the human mind is so hard to understand. So that's how really... I got involved with it. It was, we had created a previous platform technology and then been approached by Tim and the team at Halogen. And it's, wow, we could actually adapt this to something that's adjacent, but also has the potential, uh, both short-term and long-term, to do a lot of um, good for people that are uh, trying to understand their mind and explore uh, their journey. Mm, I love that. And there's a long history within the psychedelic community of what's referred to as harm reduction, from trip sitting, i.e. psychedelic peer support, to pill testing. I come from the festival world where harm reduction is a huge piece of the conversation. And it used to be the case that all you really could do was go look on Arrowhead and and see like, is that wait, is this happening? Is that is maybe this is a problem? So to have a systematized approach to health and safety in the context of both psychedelic medicine in a controlled setting, but also as we see with decriminalization, the increasing recreational use of psychedelics is hugely important. So I love that this is a platform evolving in that direction. Tim, just to kind of like round this all out, can you just give me the overview, give me in our audience the overview of Entheon, now has acquired halogen. There's also some drug development going on. Can you just give me kind of the broad suite of what Entheon's offering at the moment? So Entheon primarily, our origin story is centered around the development of DMT-based products for the purposes of treating addiction. So the core methodology around that is, or the philosophy around that is that 
we all know, as I described, that the true power of the psychedelic experience is in that ability to not sort of medicinally just create this passive experience where suddenly, oh, you know, two hours later, I feel better. But rather, it is almost a mind enlivening type of thing where through a process of entropy or greater connectivity, individuals, not without some difficulty sometimes, actually re-examine components of their belief systems in such a way that through often a challenging experience, they're able to have new experiences around potentially old stimulus, memory, or trauma. You know, I think that's inherent to the psychedelic experience, that it isn't just a rainbow road of glee and ecstasy, but rather sometimes it is a trudge through areas that we partitioned off. And so why we selected DMT is that we understand that it can elicit these uh, highly entropic states that move the brain towards criticality that allows for new learning to take place, but do so in such a way that unlike psilocybin, where the experience could be anywhere from six to eight hours, with DMT, the belief is that we can elicit these powerful, profound experiences, but do so in such a way that is titratable, as well as we can also press the big red button and that person could say, hey, that was too much for today, but maybe we can revisit it with lower risk of creating this sort of like persistent state of high distress. So that's the core of Entheon's drug development, operating off the DMT molecule and the scaffold that is contained therein, primarily around its very rapid pharmacokinetic qualities. But understanding too that dosage is not necessarily a pure per body weight calculation. There are a multitude of differentiating or modifying factors such as the rate of metabolism as well as, like we talked about, that variable rate of nurtured sort of stress load that a person brings into it, we're also very much committed to better understanding how to generate increased safety for those that are taking that brave step of wanting to acknowledge that they need help and then get help. The last thing that we want to do is for someone in a uh, state of willingness to go into a psychedelic experience and then due to metabolic factors or not well-disclosed risk factors, have an experience that is overly intense, traumatizing, or may result in something like a schizophrenic episode. And so our focus outside of the pure drug development is in the development of biomarkers that do indicate for risk and variability. And so as John will describe, our intention there is to take genetics, but not only genetics, as described in the halogen platform, there's a multitude of surveys that are also included that really help contextualize for the individual hey, outside of the potential, sometimes small genetic risk, from a lifestyle perspective and from a family history perspective, how do I get this all in view so that I have the information available to me to take into those medically necessary conversations before you go into a psychedelic treatment, whether it's with ketamine or psilocybin or whatever? How do I have all that context in front of me so that I can make the most informed decision? And, you know, we believe that having that in front of you and having those conversations really does contribute to that very important notion of set and setting. If you have assurances that, hey, from a a risk perspective, everything seems okay, I've discussed it, I've socialized and I've come to terms with it, then when you're in the midst of a potentially powerful experience, that sometimes that echo that we sometimes experience of, hey, is this forever? Am I going crazy? Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. You may be able to refer to that conversation you had earlier, which is, okay, I don't have those risk factors and this is going to inherently be dis- difficult. Maybe I don't fear that I'm you know, 
gone off and will never return. So that's the genetics component to get at this notion of safety. But we're also looking into other biomarkers that involve electroencephalogram to better characterize these uh, psychedelic drug states, whether it's with ketamine and DMT, to better understand what an individual is experiencing that is outside the scope of what is verbally communicable often. If someone were to ask you, hey, how is it going for you? It's very hard to sketch out a 4D schematic of the sort of energy fields that you're moving through. But we're trying to empiricize that so that we understand what these sort of neurophysiological expectations are as someone goes into these states and to see if a patient is within those sort of theorized ranges so that the physicians could better understand whether the individual is in fact at a 3 out of 10, 8 out of 10, or 12 out of 10 and off scale. Well, all of this sounds like it would be enormously helpful for psychedelic therapists themselves to be able to better screen patients for certain risk factors and then to have a better understanding of what a patient's experience might be. I mean, everybody wants tools like that. For now, I'm going to ask from the perspective of a psychedelic client, a psychedelic patient. Now, this halogen test is available as a consumer product at the moment. So you can spend, I think it's like $90 to do this test, and it will give you five different biomarkers. I did the test, and I was so disappointed that I was normal on all of them. I thought, you know, here I am, a psychedelic professional. Like, I was thinking that you could be like low, medium, or like extraordinary. I was really hoping I'd get something back that's like, you have the most incredible psychedelic metabolism of all. And it was like normal, 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 normal. And I was like, oh, man. But I guess normal is what you want. Is that right, John? So if we look at a population breakdown for most mutations, and this is not just for psychedelics, for metabolism mutations, for risk mutations, the segmentation is normally like on the low end, a couple percent on the high end, maybe like 10 to 15%. So in general, like the vast majority of the population for metabolic genetic markers, for risk markers, they're, they're quote normal, right? But that doesn't mean you still don't have a risk of all sorts of conditions. So like the classic example is, let's say I have the BRCA1 mutation for cancer in um, women. It doesn't mean I can't still get breast cancer. I obviously still can. It's just your rate is elevated at a certain absolute percentage above the general population. And, and what's not known, and I think this is where to Tim's comment about trying to look at other markers, whether it's like EEG brain readings, whether it's just your lifestyle, your family history, is no one knows when you stack those all together, genetics, lifestyle, family history, race, age, weight, like all those things, we all know those are components to the broader equation. And so what we're trying to do with the platform, I know everyone's like focused on genetics, 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 but I think the vision and what really resonated with me when I first met Tim is what Entheon is trying to do is to try and get all the pieces of the puzzle together. And by starting with what we're doing as a direct consumer test, as an educational tool, it gets people thinking about that, that, hey, look, as part of my treatment and my journey, it's like multifactorial. And there's multiple things I need to consider in my life. Like, do I need to, is, is like my family history an issue? Is my lifestyle an issue? Is my genetics an issue? Is my drug use an issue? Like, then when I think you will get holistically, then our, I guess our goal is that by the time you actually decide to embark on that journey, you're walking in and when you're speaking to an actual healthcare practitioner, the, the conversations are more intelligent. 
and you have a broader perspective. So we're very clear that at this stage of where the platform is, we are not recommending medical treatments. We are not saying based on your genetic profile, if you do the survey, you should go do something. It's, it's like an educational tool. And the feedback that we hear from people that do it is, wow, I wasn't even thinking about this sort of stuff. And it, it's, it's making me curious scientifically and both personally to try and figure out other things in my life. And, and that is the goal. Like our goal is like genetics is not destiny. We all know that just because you're a LeBron James kid doesn't mean you're going to be an amazing basketball player. <laughs> like, although one of his sons he probably is. But there's a, there's a whole bunch of factors, right? It's not just genetics. And that's what I'm hoping that as we, we, we talk to your audience and that, that they hear that because the simple way to market is, oh, it's genetics, but no, we're trying to, it's, it's, so the phrase is personalized medicine, right? Personalized medicine is trying to take all sorts of factors and tailor a treatment for the individual that looks at all the things. So that's really what we're hoping it is done. And that's why we say it's an educational tool. It's, it's definitely not like do the test and then we tell you to do some sort of course of action. Yeah, and I'm doing a functional medicine program right now, which is the same kind of thing, personalized medicine, looking at genes, gut health, toxology load, like just looking at the full system. And I think that that's absolutely the future of medicine. And psychedelics, particularly I think psychedelics for trauma healing, are, are an important factor. A woman who's been on the podcast who I admire greatly, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who just started the Mount Sinai Center for Psychedelic and Trauma Research, has been really looking at the epigenetic factors that um, can influence the expression of genes. And that's fascinating as well. You might have genetic markers that indicate a certain propensity for, say, depression or anxiety, but then it's actually the adverse childhood experiences right, that affect it. how... Yeah how those genes are read by the body, and that's the process of epigenetics. So it's a fascinating world where there's so much to find out. Let's look at what you have found out so far. There are five biomarkers that are observed through this test. And I love that, that the starting place, and I'll just reiterate it, is that this is not a prescription for certain kinds of psychedelic medicine. This is educational. And from what I understand, the platform is building and developing. But for now, we have five biomarkers. Three have to do with mental health risk. One has to do with ketamine metabolism. And then the fifth one, which is, I think, perhaps the most interesting here, is around psychedelic sensitivity, um, referring to serotonin receptor density. Um, so let's save that one for the end. But let's start with these three polymorphisms that have to do with mental health risk. And bearing in mind that our audience is a wide spectrum of listeners, some with a lot of medical scientific background, others without. First of all, is it, is it appropriate to kind of lump these three together and to talk about them as a triad? Would you say that that's um, an appropriate way to so start? Two of them, the DISC one and the NRG one, and I know that sounds very technical, but it's to say it's marker one or marker two, there have been some studies that have shown if you carry the risk mutation for both of them, synergistically, it increases your risk much beyond the baseline. And then the C4A marker, the copy number variation, that, that marker has actually been, was originally studied for people that had lupus. And so lupus is an, an, a disease where um, the immune system reacts with your body and they showed that if you have a low number of copies, your, your absolute risk for lupus increased. And then recently, there was a landmark GWAS study that was published in Nature by Harvard 
that showed that if you have a high number of copy number um, variations of C4A, so if you have four or five or six copies, which is very, very rare, we're talking a few percentage points of the population, that your absolute risk for getting um, a mental health condition also goes up. And so to, to make it clear, like the percentages we're talking about, because remember, this is when you do a GWAS study or you do a gene study. What is a GWAS study? Oh, so a, a genome-wide, you're basically looking at like genomes of many, many people. A genome-wide association mm-hmm. survey, those show like on an absolute basis, you're looking at maybe half a percent, one percent, maybe as high as like one and a half to two percent. But the example I use recently is look at COVID. So the mortality rate from COVID um, blended across the entire population is what, like 0.5%? It shut down the entire world. So when you look at an absolute level of, let's say, schizophrenia um, or another very common genetic marker, not like the psychedelics, what kind of is like the APOE4 mutation for Alzheimer's? It it depends. And, And this is the point of the epigenetics of, okay, I have this marker, plus I have lifestyle, plus I'm a drug user, plus I have family history. Do those things stack up where your percentage risk increases beyond just like the baseline? And so that's what we say, like, that's what we're trying to educate people on. And so if you, because if, like, you've done the test, there's another part of our platform that talks about surveys on like family history and drug use and all that stuff. And so we're obviously, there's no like magical equation where you could say, I have this marker plus this marker plus I have this family history. I put those all into some algorithm and then it says do this. But that's where we're trying to get to eventually. And we're like many years away from it because obviously we need to have much more scientific data and many more clinical studies. But that is really the goal. So your your question of can we lump them, genetics doesn't really work like that unless we're talking about metabolism. So metabolism is very easy to do a readout, right? I have the if I, I have the slow metabolism gene. I enter in my weight, this will be the approximate blood concentration levels I'll see. And then you're obviously trying to link the blood concentration levels with side effect profile or efficacy. So that's much more cut and dried, those sorts of markers. And so we're, we're, we're looking in both directions. Like another marker we're looking at, um, and we'll probably add to the um, panel, is the marker for LSD metabolism. That MindMed actually recently published a study on that, showing that if you have this gene and you're a slow metabolizer, you have that mutation, you actually metabolize LSD slower than the average population. And that has implications on eventually dosing when LSD becomes approved and may take years, but it's in the process of clinical trials. So those are really the two buckets. It's like sensitivity and metabolism, which is a lot more quantifiable. Like I can actually measure that with blood concentration or um, do some sort of endpoint study where I look at side effects. And then there's the more nebulous like risk markers, which is multifactorial. So some of the criticisms we get is, well, why are you um, telling people about the risk markers? Like, what can they do with it? Well, my, my personal opinion, and I think companies like 23andMe and et cetera, and that's another controversial topic we could talk about for another hour. Some people are of the opinion, don't give anyone the information unless the science is 100% rock solid and you can draw a straight line to something. I'm of the opinion that I think people are smart enough to understand their own body, their lifestyle and who they are and, and, and take that piece, the genetics is one, into how they view their own life and, and view their own journey. So what I feel like I'm hearing here is that this ketamine metabolism report 
is a more of a certain thing. We'll talk about that in a moment because it can be measured uh, more precisely in terms of the effect of, of a particular polymorphism or genetic mutation. When we look at these three risk reports, that's C4A, NRG1, and DISC1, that these are A, influencing a very small percentage of the population. B, that they are linked to risk factors for mental health disorders in psychosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, for all three of them. But the science isn't yet certain. This is like a nice to know in a sense, but if someone were to have any of these three polymorphisms or especially the two that you mentioned that stack together, should that person not use psychedelics, period? Or is this just in its infancy in terms of the science that we're looking at? So I wouldn't say there's enough information whether they should just not use it, period. Like that's not our goal. So for example, let's say I had a risk marker for BRCA1. Like let's use that because that's a very common, well-known marker. The, the great example I always use is Angelina Jolie, right? So Angelina Jolie, she has a family history, right? So she has outside of her own body. She has a family history where I believe her aunt died of breast cancer. Her uh, grandmother died of, I think it was her grandmother died of breast cancer. And they all, the, the family had that mutation that was passed generation to generation. So she made the decision to proactively undergo um, a double mastectomy because she had this risk. And I remember I was reading this article, her absolute risk of dying for breast cancer above the average female, it was like, it added like 2% or something. I remember they asked her, it's like, okay, so that seems like a very small absolute percentage of risk. Why did you choose to have a medical intervention? And her comment was, it's my body. I spoke to uh, my doctor. I did my own research. And that small risk for me personally was beyond what I was willing to entertain because obviously she has a big family. She has a lot of kids. So that's the extreme case because that's cancer. So I kind of look at it on the mental health side. Well, that's even, it's not as concrete as like I die or not die because we're not talking about cancer here. This is more an individual. What is their, I guess, risk tolerance when they look at in totality their family history, their lifestyle factors, their drug use, their genetics. And that I think is up to the individual. Like our, our goal is not to tell people what to do. Like it's, as an educational platform, that's not our goal. It's to get people thinking about Hey, look, if I have, let's say I'm high risk in all these markers and I have lifestyle factors and I have personal history, like maybe think twice or maybe have a better understanding of what you're about to do. But it's definitely not like a green light, whether you are like the 80 or 90% that's normal and or like a red light if you're the 5% where you have a mutation. It's not like stop. It's more to make you pause and think and think and consider everything. And that's what we're hoping. That's education. Right. And I know that we, like internally at least, and I think a present in the communications surrounding halogen to reiterate is that, like was the case with Angelina Jolie, is that those those decisions were made not in the like the processing internally of context, but of rot of conversations had with more appropriate sort of like mental health or medical professionals. The overall risk factor ultimately derived of these five reports plus a bunch of surveys really does need to be carried into a very comprehensive conversation with a mental health professional or a physician just to overview that, like maybe to go into deeper depths about family history that isn't necessarily encapsulated by those surveys. Ultimately, these decisions 
do need to be socialized um, and sort of brought into context and fully distilled prior to engaging in any type of psychedelic therapy, it is always going to be a bit of a risk evaluation. We do think that the best place to evaluate that risk isn't necessarily in isolation, biased by a desire to potentially use psychedelics that maybe weights the decision a little differently. But we really do encourage that taking those results, processing that with someone that is equipped to really understand that and sort of overview what some of the implications of these different risk factors are together. Thank you for bringing that point in there, Tim. That leads to a question that I think is relevant to our audience. Do you at the present moment at Entheon, or do you in the future plan to have a kind of direct conversation with psychedelic therapists themselves? Now, John has mentioned that this is an education platform on a fundamental level. And it seems like those who need the education the most on these matters really would be psychedelic therapists that can then have those conversations in person with their clients and their patients. Are you currently in conversation with psychedelic therapists? Do you have any plans to create specific educational materials for that population? Yeah. So what what I would say is the easiest way to have that conversation with more skeptical scientists, of which everyone obviously in the medical community wants like rock solid data, is the metabolic genetic marker side. So with that, it's very easy to measure and run like a, a controlled research study, where then coming out of that, you can actually translate that into protocol or an altered therapy. So that we're definitely considering. We're obviously talking like MindMed threw the gauntlet down, as it were, when they published that dosing study for LSD. And they were openly saying, the reason why we're doing this is we want to improve treatment algorithms in the future when these drugs become legal so that we not only can better control dosing, but that potentially can influence outcomes and side effects. So I would say that uh, from a science perspective and a clinical perspective, which is very different from the educational side, we are totally engaging with other stakeholders, like people that began it, right? Drug discovery, clinics, et cetera. And I think that's where, that's where the industry is at right now. The broader conversation about personalized medicine holistically, that like there's a lot more science that needs to be done. And but like our perspective is start the conversation because you don't start somewhere, it's never gonna happen. Right. So I think it starts now with metabolism, dosing, et cetera, and then it leads to a more holistic. And that's like the great stuff that Antion is working on, like EEGs, and no one's even talking about it right now, but you can if you have brainwave monitoring. You can actually figure out as they transition as convention through the states what's actually going on at the at, like, at, at, in your mind. So, so the that was the long answer. The, sh- the short answer is yes, we are. <laughs> and and Tim, is there anything you'd like to add to that around the relationship between Entheon and the existing community of psychedelic therapists, or how that relationship, how you see that relationship potentially maturing over time? And I'm specifically meaning the therapists, the healers, the people who are actually sitting with those clients versus researchers and those in drug discovery. Absolutely. You know, the the focus of Endown is obviously generating research and data that ultimately is, I guess, empirically generated with an eye towards that sort of regulatory oversight. The data that we produce ultimately needs to be of a nature that is I guess, variable eliminated so that when regulators either approving products or technologies or drugs, they have to know that that is done to the scrutiny that we're not accounting for so much variability that it poisons the data. That being said, we are constantly in conversations with 
you know, there are tiers to the type of data aggregation that we do. There's obviously the stuff that happens in very stringently controlled clinical trials. Then there's also a lot of, I guess, experimentation happening in the not clinically defined space. And so, of course, as we have these developments, we're always surveying the landscape for stakeholders that have practices that may include, that may be outside the scope of highly clinically controlled. So we're always trying to gather insights from those people. And we do speak to people that have practices in Costa Rica and Amsterdam that might not necessarily qualify as clinical trials within the context of that. But the reality is that there are people practicing right now that do have quite a bit of interest in the products that we're producing, the type of insights that could be gleaned of monitoring something like the psilocybin experience on a purely experiential level and not dedicated specifically to a mental health disorder. So yes, we're obviously having those conversations, but in terms of the actual conversion into clinical work or the production of that type of data, that has some more complexity, certainly. But we are obviously talking to different stakeholders in the sort of broader psychedelic space and learning what they want to see in terms of the product development, what insights they believe are useful in terms of observations of the psychedelic state or phenotypes. I think we understand too that there are different phenotypes and different personality types and different brain architectures that respond differently to psychedelic therapies. And so that's another area that we're interested in that not just the sort of the nature component, what your genetics set stage for, but from the perspective of functional realities, how do different people arrive at psychedelics and how do they respond differently to things like psilocybin or DMT? And so we're interested in all of it. And ultimately, I do think we, you know, there are so many stakeholders and voices in this space that we're aware of them all. And we're trying to be inclusive to as many as make sense. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I guess short answer, absolutely. We're, We're aware that so much innovation and healing takes place outside of just regulated environments, but hopefully that answers somewhat your question. No, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. There is a population of psychedelic therapists who are already practicing around the country. There's different versions of this, and I'm talking about ketamine-assisted therapy. So there's CAP clinics, there's more of a hands-on therapeutic approach. There's a wide spectrum of people who are practicing psychedelic-assisted therapy through ketamine. And the fourth marker, which is CYP2B6, 10 to 20% of people carry this genetic variant, and it causes them to metabolize ketamine up to two to three times slower than normal. Now, to me, this is something that anyone who's working in ketamine-assisted therapy would want to know. If someone is metabolizing ketamine two to three times slower, then that actually changes the entire office visit. It it it. It, it is significantly changing a practice. And if that's 10 to 20% of the population, then these psychedelic-assisted therapists would need to know this right away. So I'm curious, as you've been testing for this marker, are you getting feedback from people who are doing ketamine-assisted therapy? Is this being adapted into people's practices? Are, are psychedelic therapists even aware of this genetic variant? So to, to answer your last question, this genetic variant. So this genetic variant has actually been widely studied, not for ketamine, but I believe it's for a certain HIV drug that's well used in Africa. And what they noticed was that people that had um, different metabolism were responding to the drug differently, because obviously in the drug world, it's one pill fits all. You're an adult, you get X amount of milligrams in your pill of active ingredient, and then you go. And 
So that's where um, a lot of the literature of characterization of CYP2P6 star six happened. And then what they noticed, and as part of our platform, we actually point to the study that was done. They actually did a pain study where they were intravenously giving people ketamine. And they obviously knew that this genetic marker potentially was an issue. And they actually did, I believe it was, they did continuous blood monitoring. And then they were actually calculating the blood plasma concentration of ketamine over time. I think it was like over a 48-hour period. And they showed, to your point about that, yeah, it's if you're in this 10 to 20% of the population, you're dramatically metabolizing ketamine slower. And it wasn't powered to be definitive about side effect profile, but they also saw correlation between the people that had more ketamine in their bloodstream longer were actually um, experiencing more side effects. So that's never been proven in a controlled, double-blinded clinical study for psychedelics-assisted therapy. But we are, of course, looking at that and trying to understand not only the science behind it, but potentially partner partnering and running those research trials. So the final of the five biomarkers is around psychedelic sensitivity. This is also of the five, from my understanding, it's the most controversial in terms yes. of how well proven How it actually it works, exactly. How it actually works. Well, no, no, how it actually works. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so so we'll we'll get into that, and I, I have some questions about that. But essentially, this is the HTR2A receptor, and approximately twenty percent of people carry a variant that increases serotonin receptor density, and that potentially, and I think there may be an asterisk on potentially because I'm curious about this, makes them more susceptible to stronger hallucinogenic effects. So this is the one that I think is the most titillating of the five. If I might be one-fifth of the population that can have a stronger hallucinogenic experience, that's very interesting. And especially because it's such a subjective experience, what is a hallucination? And then this would affect um, your response to classic psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, DMT. Also affects SSRI adverse drug reactions such as drugs like Paxil, Prozac, that sort of thing. So maybe I'll explain the science behind it and why this is so controversial. I think everyone in, in the scientific community agrees that HDR2A and that receptor is the reason why you feel those hallucinogenic effects. So when LSD, MDMA, DMT, whatever the classical psychedelic is, when it sits in that receptor and then causes the brain firing to happen at the neuron level and it releases all the chemicals like serotonin, et cetera, in the brain. That is why you have that psychedelic, I guess, experience. So they have done analysis on this receptor, again, for um, other reasons for like addiction and potentially susceptible to depression. And they have found a correlation between your receptor density and the firing of those receptors and the subsequent, I guess, release of those chemicals in your mind, like serotonin and dopamine, et cetera. So the, I guess the controversy is, is it the occupancy, uh, i.e., are all of your receptors, like at a critical juncture, if like 70% of your receptors are occupied by LSD, for example, is that the critical mass that triggers when you start seeing the rainbows and have that, you know, have the trip? Or is it the the firing of the receptors and then the release of the chemicals in your brain. So that's where like we did our literature review. We obviously understood when we were um, trying to interpret this that this was the controversy. Our our best understanding 
was that it was receptor density that causes the increased release of serotonin. Um, but there's obviously an occupancy factor. And so that's why I think if we were to have a debate with the scientists, that that's the debate. And so, again, like what we say is this is an educational tool. <laughs> this is our best guess. We may be part of a study that comes out and does like a thousand people and then we test this. And maybe that's like the conclusive proof. But this is our best guess. And we thought this marker is so impactful that for us to just not test for it and not give people this information, like as an educational like starting point, because they can read the same studies that we've read. Like we literally list all the studies that we cite and that's our interpretation. So I hope that answers your question about uh, how a controversial marker like this, like we could have easily not included it. The safer way would be to do the CYP2D6 LSD metabolism marker that MindMed proved. But we just figured, look, like this, this, this marker is at the core of why you feel the way you do. And that's why we wanted to include it in our panel. Tim, does Entheon do its own studies or is it planning to do its own studies to further verify some of these, these matters? Yeah, we have been in uh, sort of advancing conversations with a variety of interested groups. Genetics is such a broad question that for us to generate a meaningful hypothesis, there are so many genes that we're looking at. We're looking to expand beyond what already exists. It really does boil down to a choice as to what we're trying to prove out in the near term. That being said, you know, we are explicitly interested in validation of these things. There are also other partners that are interested in the validation of specific biomarkers. On the ketamine side of things, we've been in conversations with a variety of groups that are looking to look at a variety of things, whether it is ketamine metabolism. And then I think generally we're also, we we can't disclose anything that we haven't signed yet, but looking to broadly expand upon our understanding of the relevance of these markers and to even go beyond just the markers that we have. And I think it's just implicitly it's understood that we're not going to arrive at a total understanding of what makes the psyche tick from a genetics perspective overnight. This is going to be a sort of evolving science and evolving discussion. But to reiterate what John said, this is our best estimation right now that we feel is relevant to the conversations that are supposed to be had, considerations are supposed to be had before taking a psychedelic or undergoing a psychedelic experience. But of course, yeah, we're committed to further validation of the markers that we've outlined thus far and for expansion of understanding to see what other genes might play a factor in this as well. So considering that a lot of this is really in its infancy, a lot of, I mean, genetic uh, testing broadly is still very much in its infancy. How would you recommend a psychedelic therapist who is listening to this podcast engage with this particular product, this this testing kit for psychedelics? Should they get these kits for all of their patients, try them and just have this information in their back pocket? How would you advise they include an understanding of genetics into their practice at this stage as this research is ongoing? Right now, the only legal practices that exist in North America are ketamine clinics, right? You you cannot legally be a therapist and give someone LSD or MDMA or psilocybin or any of the other. Those are all in very controlled clinical studies. Yes, you can go on retreats to Latin America, et cetera. So that's, that's my perspective, that the most impactful is that ketamine metabolism marker. I think the other markers are like for informational purposes, 
that a, a therapist can say, oh, like maybe they even want to do their own study themselves. Like just a, a lot of these therapists are crossover scientists. So that's what I would say relevancy today of what is actually legal. The only thing that is legal right now is ketamine, right? Like we all know that nothing else is legal, even though there's a lot of people that through other means by going overseas or et cetera. So if I was, if you were to ask me, Eamon, like if I'm a medical practitioner and someone comes to me with a multitude of reports and says, hey, this is like an educational thing. I'm like curious. I'm in that 10% of the population that seems to have a slow metabolism of ketamine. That I think is like a, a tactical conversation that can be had. And may, and obviously in, in this situation is probably like, that's like a piece of information the same way if a person was to come to you, we're filling out like a lifestyle survey and you said, hey, I used to be a recovering alcoholic or, you know, an uncle of mine had a mental health condition. So those, I guess those data points, when I'm a practicing healthcare practitioner, I look at it holistically. And so that's why I would say is like an actual, for those that are listening that are actually like ketamine therapists, I'd say that's actually a potentially useful data point that they can add to their toolkit when they're evaluating someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think to just follow on from that, you know, for those that are looking to therapists, it is, it really does set stage for conversation, getting all these piece, all these pieces aggregated into one source. Again, none of none of these things in isolation is going to be a determinant of fate, but rather having all these factors like consciously pulled into perspective are very useful, right? Not to say the things that I've done or the experiences or retreat centers that I've gone to, but often those considerations aren't really taken into account. And I think it's very important for, for that information basis to be there upon which to have that conversation about, oh, you indicated that you actually have. So, you know, we do see the presence of these risk markers and you indicated that you do have a family history. Do you want to expand upon that? Like what actually ended up happening? What was your uncle or brother's experience like and what precipitated that? And then if that conversation goes into the place of, well, my brother, for we do have a history of mental illness within the family. My uncle, father, brother suffered from this. And there was always a precipitating moment, like having that sort of that conversational sort of not obligation, but opportunity to discuss a multitude of risk factors and to really dive deeper, I think is such a crucial role into you know, determining appropriateness. We think just on a basic philosophical standpoint that more information is better than less information. So what are some future biomarkers that you're looking at. Now, you mentioned that LSD study that came out of MindMed. Are there others, perhaps with MDMA, which considering where it's at with FDA trials, maybe on board sooner than anything else um, in terms of psychedelic-assisted therapy, though not a classical psychedelic? Are there any other sort of genetic variants that you've been exploring that might be added to this panel in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I, I could answer one that's of interest. I think broadly, you know, we'd like to get a deeper understanding of mental health risk factors, but specifically to different drug metabolisms. But understanding, too, that there are very fringe cases that are sometimes quite life-impacting. Within the psychedelic world, there are conditions such as hallucinogenic persistent perceptual disorder or visual snow that comes about as a result of utilization of psychedelics resulting in a persistent state of mild to sometimes moderate visual hallucination. Understanding there are genetic linkages between those that suffer from that. Obviously, looking at different metabolic factors, we are interested in 
all of it, really. Um, the last time a lot of people were really doing psychedelics was the 60s and 70s, right? So there, there's like a, I guess, it's like a dark ages of 30 or 40 years where psychedelics was not really studied in a rigorous scientific manner because it's been outlawed. And now it is not, right? Now the FDA is granting fast track status to some of these drugs because they're showing such dramatic impact, which we knew 50 years ago. It's just, I think society, and there's a lot of debate on this, society got a little bit overboard where it became like fully recreational and you had millions and millions of people doing it. That probably was not a good idea. And so the way you do it in a methodical way is um, there are lots of ways that you can find hypotheses on markers. There's like I mentioned, there's GWAS studies, there's like gene-specific studies, there's observational studies that after you cluster a certain group of people, you um, sequence certain markers and then you try and draw a correlation and then you verify that. So we want to be part of that like right now. And I, I know this keeps coming up, but we, people keep saying you're too early. Well, I mean, if, like, if we're not doing it and no one's doing it because everyone says it's too early, well, then it's just not going to happen, right? Like, it's just... Someone's got to be thinking about this stuff and and we're doing a two-pronged approach. We're doing the educational side and then we're simultaneously trying to be part of the important research studies and the clinical research and the building to the scientific communities and all. A space that might be useful in terms of the panel, perhaps, you can tell me what you think about this, is maybe some of the heart condition stuff that goes into the risks with Ibogaine and Iboga. I mean, as, as a as a kind of like an educational platform, when you think about harm that can come from a psychedelic, Iboga or the extraction Ibogaine is the only psychedelic that's actually potentially lethal. Um, and I imagine that there are certain genetic risk factors having to do with heart rate and that sort of thing that actually would influence that. So that might be an interesting thing to, mm-hmm. to, to add on board. Yeah, yeah, we have had some inquiries from people that have, I guess, been doing this overseas. Do we have markers that actually specifically look at this? So that is something... There's, there's, there's so many things we can investigate, but in the end, what we do has to be driven. There needs to be some scientific reason behind it. Like, like how many markers are there in the genome? Like millions and millions. It's not like we can just like point a finger and say, oh, this one, right? So that's, I guess, the continuum of there needs to be some sort of study that someone had a hypothesis and they figured it out. So yeah, so I, I wasn't particularly aware that there's a genetic, specific genetic marker, but maybe there is. I don't know. I just know that there are heart conditions that can lead exactly, right. to to death from ibogaine, and I, I, I don't know. I presume I assumed it was genetic. So but it probably is. There is probably some genetic component, and maybe it's also other risk factors like body mass index. I don't know. That, but that that's we we will definitely look into that more because we have had inquiries. Do we have a genetic marker for ibogaine? And we should. Yeah, that could be a really cool marker to add. So what I'm hearing overall here is that really what halogen is doing at the moment is really laying the foundations. There is that biomarker, the CYP2B6, star 6, around ketamine metabolism, and that's where we have A, the most certainty, and B, the most relevance to practicing in North America with these ketamine-assisted therapy clinics. So there's the ground, the foundation for these genetic tests. There's also a holistic approach 
to educating psychedelic patients, psychedelic practitioners around all of the different factors that come into play. So I think just to kind of close today, I would love for you both to share, and you've done so somewhat, but maybe in a, in, in a more synthesized form, just the view of Halogen 2.0. What ultimately do you see this offering being for the burgeoning psychedelic medicine movement? So I can give my thoughts um, specifically on genetics, and then I'm sure Tim has thoughts on the big picture. So I would love to see this platform evolve to go beyond an educational tool to eventually, with the proper scientific evidence and clinical research studies, that can be integrated into actual algorithms. I think that would be really powerful, and that would be something bringing that side to personalized medicine. Uh, The goal is to improve outcomes. But that takes a lot of work. uh, That takes a lot of science. That takes a lot of research. And so there's other things that we're working on outside of our direct consumer giant platform, both on a technology side, a software side, even like what the great work um, that Maya is doing, like David showed us what you guys are up to, right? That, that's, that's, you guys are like one of the most advanced platforms I've ever seen out there. And that is linking like patient information, EHR, clinical trials. We want to speak to companies that are thinking about that because in the end, that's how we get to a better place. So I know I'm plugging Maya on, on this podcast, but like that's why we spoke to you guys. It was, okay, you guys are going down a different path, very software focused. We're going down like a genetics focus and that side, can we join forces as it were with other partners um, that have other pieces of the equation? So that's where I want to see it go. And I think that the, the journey to personalized medicine is going to take a lot of stakeholders. It's not just going to be us. It's not just going to be Maya. It's not just going to be drug discovery companies. It's we all need to figure this out together. And that's, that's, we're, we're trying to take the first step as it were right now. I love that perspective. Yeah. And, and Tim, yeah. Give us the big picture. Yeah, totally. I think John really got at the heart of it. Personalized medicine will obviously evolve and our understanding will evolve with science. We do think that the halogen test kit is has relevance now from that perspective of just knowing more to have better conversations. But ultimately, we do want to evolve the test kit to be more healthcare practitioner focused. That's going to take more research, more investment, and probably take a broader uh, perspective on what sort of goes into making more sort of precise determinations of whether someone is or isn't appropriate to take a specific drug. But we're committed to the development of that science. And like John said, genetics don't dictate fate. Ultimately, it is so multifactorial. How we arrive at the present day and what we're going through and how we'll likely respond to drugs is conditioned by so many environmental factors, so many things that switch on epigenetics or not. There's the opportunity for us to arrive at a future state that is inclusive of neural or natural language processing, like the monitoring of biomarkers, heart rates, and sort of different stress responses. What 50 years looks like from now, from the perspective of understanding all the different systems and mechanisms that sort of contribute to how we function in life, that is obviously too hard to imagine. But for now, we really do think that genetics do play a hugely important role. And then we're looking to, of course, you know, take into account other pieces of data, whether that's EEG data, whether it's self-reported data, whether it's longitudinal data that comes as a result of getting a genetic test and then having a psychedelic experience and then reporting after what that experience yielded, whether it was beneficial, whether it was overly strong, not strong enough. There's so much to, I guess, around these core kernels of information. There's so much potential for 
all of it together to form this very comprehensive picture about, hey, what works, what doesn't work. So yeah, we're committed to the using genetics as the basis of that and then connecting all sorts of other data ultimately to develop up these massively powerful algorithms that take into account these multifactorial sets of input that we've talked about. So yeah, I don't know if that tells it. It is a crystal ball to what the future looks like, but between now and then, obviously we're going to be making the genetics platform more robust and plugging into that other data sources from other biomarkers as well as longitudinal data for how these people that have taken the test actually respond to the drugs that they're looking to take. Well, it's a it's a beautiful crystal ball. I think we all want more information in terms of how we can provide the most healing and the safest healing, especially for some of the most vulnerable populations, like traumatized veterans, others that have a long history of complex trauma. We don't want to cause more harm through this potentially life-saving medication being administered in the wrong way to the wrong person at the wrong dose when there is so much possibility for healing. So I really appreciate what you're doing over there. And we always end the podcast the same way. So here's how we end the podcast. I'm going to give each of you an opportunity to speak directly to psychedelic therapists, the people who are either aspiring to be doing trainings at places like CIIS, who are working in breakthrough designation clinics for MDMA-assisted therapy or the multitude of people doing ketamine-assisted therapy. If you could speak to uh, psychedelic therapists or those who aspire to be, um, what would you say? Let's let's go with you first, John, and I'd love to hear what each of you would like to share to our audience. So firstly, I would say if you're interested in what you're doing, please reach out to us. Just go to our website. We have a form. Like We get inquiries all the time from psychedelic therapists. Surprisingly, a lot of people overseas contact us. Like we've gotten people that have pinged us from Australia, from like all throughout Europe, Latin America, saying what we're doing is really cool and they want to learn more. So we're always happy to talk to more about people and provide as best we can understand educational materials. And then the second thing I would say to them is um, investigate for yourself, investigate this concept of personalized medicine. Like a lot of programs now at universities and colleges are integrated. You said you were doing it yourself, right? It's There's this concept of personalized medicine that's being integrated into treatment. And I would say if you haven't considered it before, investigate for your own self-edification how genetics and, and how this potentially can play a part in improving treatment. Thank you, John. Tim, what would you like to say to our listeners of Psychedelic Therapists? Hmm, good question. First off, just want to say that I think we're all committed to the betterment of the world. I think it's such important work that we're doing. I know that there's often this characterized gulf between the work that goes in sort of the sort of the space that John and I occupy and those that are actually practicing on the ground. That I would say, you know, I believe that we're all rowing in the same direction. Our the main intent of what we do and what you all do is to really provide people the sort of like foundation upon which to seek their own sort of fulfillment or relief. And I think there's so much, I guess, pain and suffering in the world that that gulf isn't so, so big between us. I believe that the efforts that we take part in, in terms of providing some sort of regulatory sort of highly clinical validation, you know, only helps the water rise. And I think we all float in rising tide. And of course, this is the work that we do 
wouldn't be possible unless it were for those that are willing to commit their lives to really interacting one-on-one with those that, that are taking that brave step to getting better. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone. And as John mentioned, if there is interest in contacting us, we've, what we've found is that often it is, you know, the person in the field that's operating with people that makes an observation about some unique sort of quirk or uh, anomaly that they see that has such a fascinating and worthy idea to investigate. So Entheon and Halogen and Lobo are committed to giving bright ideas the opportunity to be investigated. So yeah, I just want to thank everyone uh, within the community and say that, yeah, we're all working to alleviate the ills of the world and combat the sort of crushing weight of the existential condition that is late stage capitalism or life or whatever, and that we're open to collaborating and we're looking forward to growing uh, with you all. Thank you, Tim. And John mentioned that there's a forum on the website. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Any other links, any other places that people should follow to check out your work? We'll have whatever you say, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes, including a link to if people want to order that genetic test. Uh, I think, t- Tim, we're on Twitter, right? So it's so like Entheon yeah. Bio, Entheon Biomedical. <laughs> and then there's obviously our websites, halogen.com and entheonbiomedical.com. So there's lots of information there. And yeah, just reach out to us, visit our websites. And subscribe. Well, Tim, John, thank you both so much for joining me on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It was very interesting and elucidating, and I'm so into the genetics conversation right now, so I feel like I learned a lot. I'm sure our audience did as well. So thanks for the work you're doing, and thanks for taking the time to chat today. Great. Thank you, Eamon. Thank you, Eamon. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.